Well, today we're going to look at uh, the parable of the sower, and specifically at its interpretation by Jesus. We're in Matthew 13, and let's, let's begin this morning by reading. We'll read the parable that we looked at last week, and then we'll read its interpretation. So starting at Matthew 13 and verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then starting in verse 10, Jesus spoke to his disciples. And actually, I want you to just look at, as we transition into the parable interpretation, look at verse 34. It says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And so the part that we're about to read is to the disciples and to them alone. And Jesus explained his parable to them, starting in verse 18, when he says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, in order to, at least I believe, get this parable right, we need to begin by thinking about what the disciples were expecting. And and you'll notice maybe sometimes in, in the in the little handout outline that I give you, you'll notice sometimes I give you a lot of space under before I start point one. That's because we're going to spend a, a good deal of time looking at this. But I want you to turn to Matthew, or sorry, I want you to turn to John chapter one as we kind of set this up a little bit here this morning. John chapter 1, look at verse 35. The next day again, John, and and this is John the Baptist here, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. 
One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then if you jump down to verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then in verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so right away in the gospel of John, right at the very beginning, the disciples recognized Jesus as the Messiah. In Greek, it's, it's Christos, the, the Christ. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach or Mashiach. Uh, the anointed one is what it means. That's what Christ and, and Messiah means. It's the anointed one. Nathaniel rightly recognized Jesus here both as the Son of God and the King of Israel. And the Messiah was the one whom Moses and the prophets prophesied about. He was the ultimate Son of David who would one day rule over the nations. And as we kind of think about this, it it occurred to me that Psalm chapter 2 actually puts all of these things together. Messiah, King, uh, Son of God. So turn over to Psalm chapter 2. Maybe we'll, maybe we should just read the whole thing. Psalm 2, it begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And there's that word, the Messiah, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so again, in Psalm two, we have all three titles. We have Messiah or his anointed one in verse two. We have king in verse six and Son in verse 7. And this Messiah, King, Son of God, was going to rule over the nations. And Yahweh would make the nations his heritage. And this is the one that the disciples recognized even at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now this rule over the ends of the earth, as Psalm 2 puts it, is is what we call the kingdom of God. And it's the reign of the Messiah from David's throne over Israel and over the whole earth. That's what the promise, that's, that's what the prophets promised. That's what they spoke about. And that's what they looked forward to. Now, you may remember, but I realize you probably also may not at all remember 
But we talked about these things fairly frequently in the early chapters of Matthew, and we kind of went back at that time and looked at those prophecies, especially those prophecies that um, that Matthew quoted when he quoted from the prophets, and he said that these things were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we went back to all of those passages, and we saw that that what Matthew meant in those passages is that the one that these prophets spoke about is here the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. He is here, and this is the one that the prophets had, had talked about. The King had come, and so naturally the, the expectation of the disciples was that He would bring in the kingdom. The kingdom of God, or as, as Matthew usually calls it, the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to turn then with me to Daniel chapter 2, which is where this kingdom of heaven language comes from, or at least it's, it's the, the closest kind of referent to this kingdom of heaven. Daniel chapter 2. And the reason that we're doing this, the reason that we're kind of taking this little detour to talk about the kingdom this morning is because... These parables in Matthew 13 are all about the mysteries of the kingdom, or as as the ESV translates it, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And so in Daniel chapter 2, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had dreams. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the the interpretation." The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. And so Nebuchadnezzar won't tell the dream. And and maybe it is that he couldn't remember the dream or whatever the reason, Nebuchadnezzar wants them to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And so he wants the dream and the interpretation. And and of course, nobody could do that. The way that these things work is that you tell me the dream and I'll make up an interpretation that kind of suits the king, um, that the king's happy with. But Nebuchadnezzar was firm. He wouldn't do it. And so if you look at verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now to kind of shorten this up a little bit, the king was angry and he was going to have all the wise men killed. But just before he did, just before it happened, Yahweh showed Daniel the dream and its interpretation. And so if you jump down to verse 19... It says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision or in a vision of the night. And verse 28 says that, that God in heaven is the one who reveals mysteries. And he had made known to the king what will be in the latter days. And then in verse 31 and following, we have the dream. And we're going to read this 
kind of the whole thing here, starting in verse 31. You saw, O king, Daniel's interpreting the, the dream for the king. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet of toes, the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay and as the And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so will the, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom and he shall, and that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Its interpretation sure. Now, throughout church history, the, the four kingdoms that are mentioned here have been identified as, as Babylon. You, you know, the head of gold, verse 38. You are the head of gold, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, after Babylon came Medo-Persia, the chest of silver, and then Greece, the, the middle and the thighs of bronze. And the fourth kingdom was Rome, iron. It, it's a, really a great picture of, of Roman rule, the Roman Empire, which eventually divided into the nations that we know today. But really for our purpose here, our interest is in this stone in verse 34. Again, look at verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into, in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
And again, this stone is described in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. And so this stone comes down from heaven and suddenly the kingdoms are destroyed and an eternal kingdom is established in their place. And this is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven that is established by no human hand. Now, Daniel speaks about this again in chapter 7, and I want you to turn and look at uh, an important text for Christology and, and Christ and, and eschatology as well. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. Daniel says there, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so here in this passage, we see that same eternal kingdom But now we see one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And of course, we know that this refers to the Lord Jesus who called himself the son of man and spoke about himself returning with the clouds of heaven. And so Daniel promises, prophesies about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that comes from heaven that's going to be ruled over forever by the Messiah. And of course, when, when Jesus came, and you can go back to Matthew now, when Jesus came and began his ministry in Matthew 4 and verse 17, he says, it says there, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the Old Testament had predicted a time of, of national repentance along with the coming of the kingdom. And that word there at hand means that something is close, it's, it's on the brink, it's near. And the idea is that the king was present and he would bring in the kingdom. He would bring in the kingdom if the nation would repent. And Jesus' miracles showed that he had the power to accomplish these things. In fact, he even, he even rose the synagogue's um, daughter, the ruler of the synagogue's daughter from the dead in Matthew chapter 9 verses 18 to 26. Jesus could banish sickness. He could take care of death. He could forgive sins. All of these things would be necessary for the establishment of the kingdom. But Israel did not repent, and they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And so what's going to happen now is a a new aspect of the kingdom program is going to be revealed starting in Matthew chapter 13. And from this point on, really from Matthew chapter 11 and 12 on, when Israel refuses to repent, Jesus never again is going to say that the kingdom is at hand, and he begins teaching the people in parables. You see, the crowds, they weren't prepared to accept him as their Messiah, and so how would they be prepared to recognize this this change, I guess we could call it, this 
really part of God's eternal plan, but it, as far as humanly speaking, there's a there's something new that's going to happen with the kingdom. And so they weren't prepared for this, that Jesus begins to teach that there's actually going to be two comings of the Messiah and that the kingdom is not going to be established at this point. And this is called a mystery, or again, the ESV, a, a secret, something that was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament spoke about the suffering of the Messiah, and it spoke about his conquering and his reign over the nations and his kingdom, but how these two things were related to one another was never revealed. And so the mystery or the mysteries of the kingdom involves this gap between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah where he would suffer and die and pay the penalty for our sins and rise from the dead. And the second coming of the Messiah when he would come on the clouds of heaven and establish his kingdom and rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And this gap, this time between the two comings of Christ was not revealed in the Old Testament until, at least not clearly revealed if it is there, until Matthew chapter 13. Luke calls this time period the the time of the Gentiles. Theologians sometimes call it the inter-advent period. There's other names for it as well, but I, I, they're not coming to the top of my mind at this moment. Sometimes we think about it as the church age, but, but technically the church begins a little bit later. So it's, it's this time between the two comings of the Messiah. And Matthew 13, the parables in Matthew 13 teach about, about this time, this time that we are currently living in today. And so it's, it's very applicable to us today what we're going to see in these parables. And when Jesus returns, he's going to establish his kingdom over the whole earth and he's going to reign on the throne of David for 1,000 years, fulfilling all that the law and the prophets spoke about. And we also will reign with him in that time. And then this kingdom that our Lord establishes when he returns the second time, this kingdom is going to transition into the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. And you can read about it kind of on your own time at home, the, the coming, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. If you just read Revelation 19 all the way to the end, you'll kind of see the whole chronology, the coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, the thousand-year reign, the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, although we're still waiting the kingdom's establishment, there, there is one sense in which the, the kingdom is present. And, and this really brings us back now to our parable. So if you kind of, if I lost you there, come on back with me now. We're back to the parable. The, and, and here's the sense in which the kingdom is present. Those who are saved belong to the kingdom. We are sons of the kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom. And we are awaiting our inheritance. And so as we proclaim the gospel, we gather people into the kingdom. And that's really the, the mark of this age. We're to go to all nations, making disciples, preparing people for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our mission is to preach the good news of salvation in Christ so that as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, that it says there, Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the, son, of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
And so we are transferred from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, but we're still awaiting our inheritance, really the inheritance of that kingdom. And so in as we live in this age, our goal is to see this happen to others. Our goal is to see people converted to Christ and become citizens or sons of the kingdom that their sins might be forgiven and that they would be ready when the Lord returns to do all that the prophets have spoken about. Now, Jesus has already begun to teach his disciples about this mission. And, and you'll remember that from chapter 10. We call chapter 10 the message on missions. And he told them in that section that not everyone would receive their gospel. And he warned them about persecution as they went forth and proclaimed the good news of salvation. And he spoke of the rejection even by family. And he talked about the possibility of, of even being put to death for his sake. And so the message really remains the same. The, the message remains repent and follow Jesus Christ and become a disciple of his. But now they're not going to say that the kingdom is at hand. They're just going to call, really, if we could think about it this way, they're going to call individuals to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And they're going to go to the nations and they're going to preach this good news and, and invite people to become citizens of the kingdom. Now, our parable for today explains kind of two things. It, it explains Jesus' rejection and the rejection that the disciples are also going to face as they go forth with the gospel message. And this is going to help the disciples know what to expect as they bring the word of God to Israel and, and later as they bring the word of God to all nations. And so the idea is the kingdom's not coming and yet we can still participate in the kingdom program. But as we go and preach this gospel, what should we expect? And this is for us as well, brothers and sisters. What, what should we expect as we proclaim the gospel to our friends and neighbors? How are people going to respond as we invite them and urge them to repent and believe and to follow Jesus and to be ready for the coming of the kingdom of God? How will the world respond to the message? And the parable answers that question. The parable began with the sower who sowed seed, and we talked about last time how that would have looked, how the sowing would have went. In verse 19, we see that the seed represents the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. Verse 19. In Mark 4, 4, the parallel passage, the parallel passages here are Mark 4 and Luke chapter 8. Mark 4, 14, it's just simply the word. And in Luke 8, 11, it's the word of God. Now, the sower himself isn't identified at all in any of the explanations of this parable. But Jesus would have been the ultimate sower. He's the ultimate sower of the seed, the, the ultimate preacher of the word. And surely what we see here also applies to us as well. And it kind of looks beyond Jesus to anyone who proclaims the word of God. As disciples of Christ, again, our mission is to proclaim him, to proclaim the Lord Jesus, and to make disciples and so this applies to us as well. And so as we proclaim the word of the kingdom, what will happen as we do it? And what we're going to see is we're going to see four responses. We're going to see four different responses to the word of God, to the word of the kingdom. And so here's four responses to expect as you proclaim the gospel. 
And we're just going to simply call it here the gospel. The, the gospel is the message of Christ. It's the message of salvation. It's the message of how to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's how to live as a citizen of that kingdom, awaiting return of the king. And so we're going to just simply call it four responses to expect as you preach the gospel. And these responses are going to show us the difference between true and false believers. The difference between true and false believers. Some are going to accept the message. Others will not. Some will seem to accept the message, but they, they won't bear fruit, and therefore they will show that they were not truly saved. And the first three responses in our text show people who are not going to enter the kingdom. These are, these are people who are unsaved people. They bear no fruit. The fourth and final response is going to show us a picture of a true believer. And each response focuses on one particular entity that works either against the seed and its fruit or for the seed and its fruit. And you'll kind of see what we're getting at when I talk about that one particular entity. Each soil represents the state of the person who hears the word. And those who ultimate, who don't ultimately bear fruit don't do so because something keeps them from producing fruit. And those who do bear fruit do bear, do bear fruit because of something as well, because God works in their hearts. And so as we proclaim the gospel, these entities are going to show themselves. And the first one is the devil. And so number one, as you proclaim the gospel, expect the devil to work. Expect the devil to work as you proclaim the gospel. Look at verse four, Matthew 13, verse four, as he sowed, Some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And then the explanation of that in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now the parallel passage in Luke 8 verse 12 says this, the ones along the path are those who have heard Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And in Mark 4, 4 verse 15, it says, When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so the evil one, the devil, or Satan, he's a real being. He's a a fallen angel, the prince of demons. And as we proclaim the gospel, he works to take away the message. And he takes it away so that they may not believe and be saved, according to the passage in Luke. And he snatches the word, according to our passage in, in, Luke, in Matthew 13 and verse 19, he snatches it. It's, it's a strong word that means to grab or to seize suddenly, like a, like a robber would kind of attack somebody and, and grab something and seize something from them. And so the devil grabs the word so that the hearer does not understand, according to Matthew. Grabs the word so that the hearer doesn't understand. Now that word understand, that's a, a key word throughout this section, throughout Matthew 13. We saw it last week, we saw it in verses 13 and 14 and 15. And we're going to see it again in verse 23, where the one in the good soil hears the word and understands it. 
And the understanding there, it says, indeed leads to fruit. Now, the word itself indicates that, that, that there's going to be fruit because, remember, this word means to understand in such a way that it changes somebody's practice, that it changes their life. But here in verse 19, the person does not come to understand, and so they don't repent. They don't respond to the word. Their understanding, their, their life isn't affected by their understanding, and so they don't bear fruit, and their practice doesn't change. And again, this is attributed to the devil who comes and snatches the word away from people's hearts. Well, how does the devil do this? How does he snatch words from hearts like a bird eating grain along a path? Well, he works indirectly through, really through man's disposition towards sin. And he works indirectly through our prejudice against God. And we see the devil's work when, when anyone rejects God's word or when they fail to respond to the word of God or when they refuse to respond, we can see that the devil has been at work, although we maybe can't understand exactly how that works. And so we see the devil's work whenever somebody will not submit to God's word and, and really for whatever reason they won't do it, that's the devil's work. Now, Satan has different methods. He has varying schemes that he uses to, to get people to reject God's word. Sometimes pride will keep a person from humbling themselves and repenting. Sometimes it's the fear of man that will, will keep people more concerned about what others think than what God says. Sometimes it's just love for sin or even love for self, love for comfort, love of pleasure, love of power, love of money. These are the kinds of things that the devil uses indirectly to keep people from submitting to God's word. But always the result is the same, refusal to obey, refusal to believe, refusal to repent, refusal to rightly respond to the word. Now, when we think about this, we can't blame it all on the devil. Such people are responsible for their own actions. But it really should make us tremble to think about this, that, that the devil is working to keep you from responding to the word of God. And that really is a frightening thing to think about. The devil is actually working. This personal, intelligent being is working to keep people from responding to the word of God. And so as we preach the gospel, we should expect people at times to reject our message. In fact, I think about when I was first saved, before I was saved, I strongly and angrily rejected the word of God that was originally sown in my heart. But we should expect this at times, even for people to get angry at us as the messengers of the gospel. We should expect people not to respond when we, we preach. And, and when we think about it, really that's the most natural response for sinners is to continue in their sin and refuse to follow Jesus Christ. The most natural thing for a sinner is to reject God and his terms of peace. And so as we go forth, we need to expect the work of the devil. Now, secondly, as you proclaim the gospel, we should expect the work of the flesh. Expect the work of the flesh. Now, the flesh is how Scripture speaks about unsaved man. The flesh and the body are, are related to our corrupted desires. And what we see in verse 20 and 21 is a person who at first seems to become a follower of Christ, but they don't have that something, and we'll talk about what that something is, but they don't have that something that makes them willing to suffer with Christ. And in the picture of the parable, they don't have the root. 
And what we'll see is that they're still held captive by the desires of unsaved man. Look at verse 20. It says, for as, as for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so here is one who seems promising. You know, if you think about it, how excited would most pastors be to, if, if somebody immediately received the word of God with joy? You know, it's a, this is kind of what, almost what you're hoping for when you preach the gospel. And yet, and yet it's not, it's not sufficient what's happening here. These people are responding emotionally, but it's, it's superficial. You see, people can superficially believe and not truly be saved. In fact, Luke in Luke 8.13 in the parallel passage, he even uses that word believe. And he says the ones there, this is Luke 8.13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now Jesus keeps this in the parabolic metaphor when he says they have no root. Right? People don't have roots. We don't have roots. But the, the picture is of somebody who doesn't have staying power. They don't have the depth of faith necessary to endure the time of testing, as Luke puts it, or tribulation or persecution, as Matthew puts it. And so we could ask, and I think we do well to ask, well, what is this root? What is this root that we're looking for? It says, has no root in himself. What does it mean to have a root in oneself? And I think it's helpful to, to think about these separately. So think about first tribulation. Tribulation on account of the word, that means trouble that inflicts distress. And the word is just a general word for any kind of trials, any kind of affliction, tribulation, difficulty in this world. And this trouble is, is trouble that one experiences because of obedience to God's word. It's, it's persecution or tribulation on account of the word, verse 21. Now the word persecution, that's a little bit more specific. And, and in the biblical usage, it refers to oppression or harassment because of one's faith. Now what root enables one to continue to obey Christ and endure harassment even to the point of death? Well, I would say the, the root there would be true saving faith. We know that saving faith enables one to endure. I think another way and, and helpful to put it is to think about it in terms of love for God and love for Jesus Christ. And really those two things go together. Genuine saving faith and produces love for God and love for Christ. And Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so true salvation produces obedience and love. True salvation produces obedience and love. Jesus pointed us to the same thing really in Matthew chapter 10 where he called his disciples to love him above father, mother, son, daughter, even above their, our own lives. Jesus says we're to love him. But this seed on the rocky soil didn't have this root, didn't have this love, and they're missing the substance. They don't have the staying power. And so when following the word 
gets into the realms of tribulation or persecution, these people, they don't want to do it. They don't want to go any further. And as quickly as they came, it says they will go. And so again, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now they may remain quite a while until the trouble comes, but when it comes, they fall away. Now this word fall away is an an interesting word. It means to, to cause someone to be brought to a downfall. To cause someone to sin either by unbelief or by breaking the law or by false teaching, but by, by one of those means, it causes somebody to be brought to a downfall. And so this person is going to go astray into sin because they won't endure hardships on account of Christ. And such a one shows that really they love themselves more than they love Christ. And they're more concerned about their own personal comfort than they are about obedience or serving Jesus Christ. Now in our day when tribulation and persecution is minimal, at least in North America, it's very possible that many such people are in the church, right? They, they could be very much, we could, we could have these people in the church, but they're not facing the tribulation yet. They're still unfruitful, but they haven't shown their true state because the tribulation and the persecution hasn't caused them to come to their downfall. But Jesus warned us that there would be some people like this, that an emotional response, or even a joyous response is not sufficient to the Word of God. What we need is to go deeper. We need to have a response that comes to love Christ and follow Him and, and see Him even above our own self, even above our own lives. This is the kind of, of faith that, that tr- this is the, this is the kind of result that comes from true saving faith, a love for Jesus Christ that endures persecution, endures tribulation. And so be careful about this. You know, you, you need to ask yourself, do you have the root of true religion? Do you have the root of true religion? Do you truly love Jesus Christ? Are you willing to suffer for his sake? Are you, are you obeying in the day-to-day things of your life? Are you following his word? Let's go to the third one then. What, this is the other thing that we should expect. Not only will people receive the word with joy and then fall away, or not only will Satan come and take the word of God away so that people reject the word, but thirdly, we should expect the work of the world as we proclaim the gospel. We should expect the work of the world. Look at verse 22. It says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The parallel in Mark 4, 18 and 19 says, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Or Luke 8, 14 says, As for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And so here's another cause of unfruitfulness. It's the world. The world is described here by cares and riches and and pleasures and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things of the world. 
And these things, these desires, keep a believer from producing fruit, just like thorns are going to take all the water and all the sunlight and all the nutrients from a stalk of wheat. And so this describes a person who hears the word and and maybe even seems to grow at first for a while, but something else takes priority in their life. Something else takes priority, and it's the desire for other things. And the desire for the things of the world kind of chokes out the word of God and obedience and living for Christ, and the, the person proves unfruitful. Now, Jesus warned about this in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, verse 24. Go back and look at that, an important passage there. Where Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now that word money there meant was, was literally mammon, an Aramaic word if I remember right, mammon, and mammon there means wealth or property or possessions, really the things of the world. And Jesus says you can only serve one. You can only love one. You can only be devoted to one. And it's either the Lord or the world. It's either God or money, property, possessions, and wealth. And only one, if you think about it, can truly satisfy. Only one is truly eternal. The world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, 1 John 2.17. In James 4 and verse 4, he tells us there that if anyone loves the world, the love... Oh, I'm sorry, that's that's uh, 1 John 2.15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But in James 4.4, 4, he tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so we're back then here to thinking about the love of God. Loving God is one of the key fruits of true salvation. And the key to overcoming the world is faith that sees God for who he is and loves him and devotes itself to him and wants to serve him. And we see all of this in, in 1 John chapter 5. So I've already quoted a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 3, but go, go and look at, at 1 John 5, 1 to 4 here with me. First John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so we see here in this passage, we see faith, we see love, we see the new birth, we see obedience, keeping his commandments. All of these things go together. And together they overcome the love of the world and the soul of a person. And so all of these things working together, the new birth, faith, the love towards God, obedience, they overcome the world. And the world, again, is this whole system of ideas and beliefs and practices that are contrary to God. 
And of course, Satan is the head of the world and the, the fleshly desires of sinful man is what, what fuels this world system that's contrary to God. But Jesus would have us as His disciples seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and allow the things of the world to be added to us as we are more concerned about serving the Lord. And so we're not to be anxious about the world. And our aim should be to please God, not to please the world, and to live for God, not to live for the things of the world, and to love God and not to love this whole world system. And the true believer overcomes the world by faith and love that results from the new birth in our salvation, because we are new creatures in Christ. And the final aspect of our salvation as we go into the next point is going to kind of show us that even more clearly. This is going to be a picture of saving grace. It's going to be a picture of regeneration. And so we've got these three enemies. We've got these three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of these things would work against sinful man and, and keep them from really rightly responding to God's word in, in a saving way. But by God's grace, these things can be overcome. Not that we're going to be perfect. Not that we're going to uh, 100% forsake the world or live 100% so that we, we follow God no matter the cost. But there's going to be a, a, a magnificent difference here as we look at the fruit of the person who's truly saved. Number four, as you proclaim the gospel, you should expect this. You should expect the work of the Lord. Because the Lord, by His power, can overcome all of these things and save people when we preach the gospel to them. And so look at verse 23. We'll go back to Matthew 20, 13, 23. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who bear, hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And this response is really truly amazing, again, when we consider the depravity of man, and we consider this evil, evil trio of the world, the flesh, and the devil who work against us and who work against our salvation. The parallel passages in Mark and Luke kind of help fill in the picture here, and so Mark 4.20 says, but those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And then in Luke 8, 15, as for that which is, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And so together we see understanding of the word, an understanding that alters one's behavior, and we see accepting the word, which means to acknowledge it, that it is correct to see it as, as right. And we see holding the word fast, which, which has this idea of adhering firmly to what it says and to retain it faithfully. And this holding fast is done, according to Luke, with an honest and a good heart. A heart that has turned away from the devil and the flesh and the world and turned to God. And really only God could make our hearts honest and good. And we wouldn't even dare talk about an honest and good heart if it wasn't right there in Luke chapter 8, 15, because we know that our hearts are wicked and, and deceitful. But here is one whose God has changed his heart. And he holds fast to the word. Whereas scripture again typically speaks about an evil, 
unbelieving heart. But here we know that the Lord has worked and, and transformed the heart. And these good soil people are said to indeed bear fruit and yield. And just like the, the root of the rocky soil or the lack of root there, so here is, this is a picture of, of the wheat or barley. There's, there's fruit that's being born here. And the fruit isn't defined, although we might think of, of the fruit of repentance that John the Baptist looked for. It's the same word there. Or we might think, well, to, to kind of contrast this when we think, what is this fruit? Well, if we contrast it with the, the other ones that had no fruit in the other soils, I think it's really helpful to do so. The fruit means that one doesn't lose the word to Satan. And the fruit means that one endures tribulation and persecution on account of the word. And the fruit means that it's not choked by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And we could think of these as Disciple making disciples of the Lord. These are, these are the fruit, those who make disciples, those who serve the Lord, those who believe and serve Him. And they do the will of their Father in heaven. We could think of them in terms of things we've seen earlier in Matthew. These are the ones who in Matthew 7.24, everyone who hears these words of mine, again, this is the words of the Sermon on the Mount, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And so the fruitful person is that person who hears the word of the Lord Jesus and does it and puts it into practice and they can endure and they're ready for the judgment. Or we could put it in terms of Matthew 10 and verse 14 that where Jesus says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words. And so the the fruitful person is the one who does receive the words of the Lord. In Matthew 10, 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And so the fruitful person is the one who's being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The fruitful person is the one who responded to Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is the person who takes the yoke of the Lord upon them and learns from him because he is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so this is a person who comes to Christ, takes up his yoke, follows him, serves him, and even by grace finds it an easy thing to do because of the power of the Lord's work in that one's life. Or we could put it in terms of Matthew 12 and verse 50 where Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These are those who love Jesus and keep His commandments. And all of this speaks again of the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of the new birth. Now scholars debate here uh, about the, the fruitfulness of the harvest here. Is this a normal harvest? Is this an abundant harvest? Is this a even a supernatural harvest? Talks about a hundredfold, sixty and thirty. Now it's difficult to, to kind of make a judgment on this because a couple of things. One is we don't even know what kind of seed is being sown. We don't know how to measure the, the seed. Are we, are we counting per head on each plant? Or are we counting the total increase of the field? And apparently that makes a difference. I don't even quite understand how. A good rule when we're interpreting the parables is if it doesn't say it, 
if it doesn't go into the details of it, we shouldn't kind of make something of it. It's not important. But I think there is something here to the fruitfulness of this harvest. Uh, a 30-fold harvest, even a 30-fold harvest, a 30 times harvest is, is really something quite significant. That would be on the very high end of, of, of what might be a normal yield, again, depending on how we count. But it's at the very highest end of, of what could possibly happen normally. You know, if you think about it, if you made a 30 times return in one year, in one season, that, that's a very good investment, right? You put 30, you know, you get, you get, put $1 down, you get 30 times back. That, you know, I'd sign me up for that. Um, 30 time investment, that's a, that's a, that's a supernatural seeming return. In Genesis 26 and verse 12, it says this, it says, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And so a hundredfold harvest had happened at least at one point in scripture, but it was a, a blessing from the Lord and it was beyond normal and it made Isaac very wealthy. And so it seems that Jesus intends here something that, that this is above normal. The, the response of this soil is well beyond the average return. And, and all of that, I think, is meant to correspond to the miracle of the new birth, the supernatural transformation that happens when somebody truly trusts in and believes in Jesus Christ. When somebody hears and understands the word in such a way that they repent and believe and come to love the Lord Jesus, even through tribulation and persecution, and they turn their back on the world and they're devoted to serving the Lord, this is a result of a supernatural work of God. And as we go forth and as we preach the gospel, we should actually expect the Lord to work in this way. We should expect Him to miraculously transform lives, to, to open people's eyes and to cause them to turn from the world, the flesh and the devil and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We should expect some people to believe and be saved. And when that happens, they will indeed bear fruit. Now, they won't all bear the same amount of fruit. Each disciple is different and has different gifts and different usefulness, but they will be, they will all bear fruit even to amazing amounts, 30, 60, 100 fold. And the reason is, is because they have an amazing Savior who changes their life. And so when we preach the gospel, and this is what we should do, this is our mission, this is how we can participate in what God is doing in the world today, we can preach the gospel. But when we do that, not only are we serving the Lord, not only are we participating in His great work, but also we should expect certain responses. We should expect some people to reject the word. We should expect some people to get angry and, and to, to turn it away and to even mock us and persecute us. We should expect some people to reject the word. We should expect sometimes that people will receive it with joy and be very excited and enthusiastic, but not have true religion, not have the root that it causes them to endure. And we should expect them to fall away and turn away and, and we will know at that point that they weren't truly saved. We should also expect that as some people hear the word, they will be choked out by the cares of the world and the, the pleasures of riches and they will, they will pursue the world and they'll bear no fruit in this life and they'll waste their life and, and, and end up in hell. 
But we should also expect that some will respond and some will produce. Now, the point of the parable is not to kind of show us what kind of percentages we should get. It's not that we're supposed to draw from this that a quarter are going to be like this and a quarter are going to be like that and a quarter are going to get saved. But this is what we should expect as we preach the gospel. And so, that's what we should expect. And and then I think what's just kind of in closing, I think it's just appropriate to ask for us to kind of examine our own selves. Think about your own life. How, how are you doing in these three areas? How are you doing in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil? How are you doing in obedience? How are you doing in love for the Lord Jesus Christ? How are you doing in serving Him? And how's your devotion to Him? These are all things that we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God to us. And so we need to think, and I think we rightly think in, in this moment, how is my response? And if it hasn't been what it ought to be, then it's time to repent. It's time to call on the Lord. It's time to ask Him to restore the joy of your salvation. We're going to sing now in response. We're going to sing, It is well with my soul. But if it's not well with your soul, I would, I would say then pray that the Lord would make it well with your soul. That He would turn you by His grace to be obedient to His Word, to follow Him and love him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this parable that teaches us how to respond, what to expect. We thank you for your kingdom program, your plan. We thank you that you made us citizens of your kingdom. Father, we thank you that we know that not everyone's going to respond and, and that in a sense, it's, it's what you told us would happen. But Father, for those of us who are here, we pray that we would be true believers. We pray that we would be fruitful. We pray that you would help us in our battle against our flesh. We pray that you would help us in our battle against this world system and the things of the world and help us to live for eternity. We pray that you would help us to always heed your word and never to reject it. We pray that you would help us to submit to it, to understand your word that we would have honest and good hearts by the power of regeneration and that we would live as believers in this world, that we would bear fruit in our lives that glorifies you. We pray that for our church and, and we pray that for our community. We pray that you would do a great work of turning people to Jesus Christ, to follow him and be his disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.